Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Europolex podcast with me, Gabriel Hedengren, as well as Javid Ibad. Hello, Javid. Hello, Gabriel. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic so far. How about you? Yeah, yeah, all good. I'm freezing here in my London flat, trying to wrap my head around all these elections going on. <laughs> yeah, how about you? Are you in um, Romania still? Yeah, having more or less the same, like freezing in the Cluj-Napoca apartment and covering all the elections. So yeah, so far so good. So far so good. Today our main focus will be on electoral events in authoritarian countries in Europe in light of recent presidential elections in Azerbaijan and upcoming votes being orchestrated, should I say, in Belarus and Russia. So obviously as Europolex we very much acknowledge the facts about these elections and the way in which they are orchestrated and manipulated, but they are still elections in Europe. So we still cover them and report on them and are in touch with people in those countries as well, campaigning and covering the events. But before I go into that and before we have the conversation about that, Javid, I think Let's just power through some other news in terms of national and regional elections that have happened since our last episode. So you remember in the last episode, big focus was on Finland and what eventually ended up happening there was a runoff between the centre-right Alexander Stubb and the Green Party Pekka Havisto. They ended up in a second round vote, which was very close, but ended up being won by Alexander Stubb, who is now the president-elect of Finland from the centre-right party, which follows a long period of an independent president. And it will be very interesting to see the effect that that has. He's already making the rounds, travelling around. He obviously has a lot of experience from being a prime minister before this. So an establishment choice, can we say, by the Finns. Other presidential elections were held in Azerbaijan, as I mentioned. President Ilham Aliyev won uh, snap presidential elections there by a huge margin with the official result saying that he won 92% of the vote. A big backdrop of the elections, you know, you can't deny the impact and the influence of the successful military campaign from Azerbaijan's perspective against the Armenian-backed separatists in Nagorno-Karabakh, creating this environment inside Azerbaijan where it's very difficult to challenge him politically. The results have been widely discredited internationally with the country refusing to let Western observers get accreditation to observe the election, and the country has also been suspended from the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. So while it's a a strengthening move by President Aliyev in Azerbaijan with 92% of the vote, there are many questions about that, and we'll have to continue reporting and observing what this means for politics in the country. Other than this, there's been lots of regional elections, but also by-elections to national parliaments. It's hotly followed were the ones in The UK, where the Labour Party, which is the main opposition party in the UK, emerged victorious from two by-elections in February so far, in which it overturned large Conservative Party majorities in the lovely towns of Wellingborough and Kingswood. What you see here is sort of 20% gap in the polls favouring the Labour Party being reflected in these results for Parliament. Interesting, though, I think in terms of polling and following electoral politics, I think, was that it was the first proper showing this year for the right-wing populist reform party, which was previously the Brexit party, which was basically an offshoot of the UKIP party that a lot of you, I'm sure, will remember. So they've been polling around 10 to 14 percent in the national polls in the UK, and many people have been sort of questioning that and wondering how much of that is sort of error or just sort of a fluffy vote that will disappear. But in both of these elections, they did receive more than 10%, which they will see as a good sign. And in one case, even the difference between 
Labour and the Conservative Party was smaller than the vote for reform, which was what they want. That's an interesting development to follow as everyone prepares for elections in the UK within the next six to nine months. And other than that, there were also some recall elections in Berlin. Don't have to go into too much detail, but there were elections across Berlin in 2021 when they elected the seats to the Bundestag as well as regionally were a complete mess with lots of examples of people being stuck in queues, lost ballots, missing votes. In February 2024, it was decided that 12 direct mandates to the Bundestag were going to be voted on again. While nothing changed, the mandates remain with the same parties. Again, it confirmed the trend in the polls of the centre-right CDU and the right-wing populist Alternative for Deutschland increasing at the expense of the liberal, green and centre-left parties of the German national government. So while the increase for AFD was modest, I think 1% or 2%, that still has to be seen as quite a big deal in Berlin, which is largely a progressive left-wing city. Finally, regional elections, there have been two in the Azores. Everyone was observing what those islands were doing, also as a prelude to national elections in Portugal next month. Azores had snap elections, and the incumbent centre-right government lost a budget vote in the Azores, and thus an election was forced to be held. What this ended up creating was a situation with the hung parliament, uh, which everyone loves, obviously, and the big winner was the right-wing populist Chega party, who gained three seats at the expense of the left who lost as well as the centre-right government. This has resulted in a hug parliament where the centre-right parties that are in a coalition with the government there currently would need to ally with either Chega or the centre-left parties in the chamber to get a majority. And a lot of people are now seeing this as an increasingly possible result in those national elections on the 10th of March. So Again, nothing beats actual votes and elections in order to confirm trends that we see in polling. So we saw that in the Azores and a bit of, a, I guess, interesting one in Spain, also in the autonomous region of Galicia. On February 18th, they elected the regional parliament there, which was, you could say, a success for the centre-right Partido Popular. They managed to retain its majority there. It's a big stronghold area. However, the big sort of, I guess, development was that the Galician nationalist bloc which is a left-wing movement, got 32% of the vote, which is as high as ever, largely at the expense of the central-left Socialist Party of the current Prime Minister of Spain, Pedro Sánchez. That sort of a whistle-stop tour of European electoral politics in February of 2024. Javid, let's dive into and dissect the upcoming elections that I mentioned up top. We have the national parliamentary election. I put it in quotes in our script in Belarus. And the first round of the presidential election again, quote unquote, in Russia. So let's go to Russia after and maybe start talking about Belarus. Why do you think our listeners and people who care about electoral democracy in Europe should pay attention to these elections in Belarus that are coming up? Thank you very much. It is of uh, great importance to talk about both Belarus and Russia, especially Belarus, because what we see that over the last years, the main observable trend within the Belarus society is that the society is ripe for some democratic reforms. And we see like there's this pretty huge request for political liberalization that we've seen like uh, in the aftermath of 2020 presidential elections. At the moment, the situation is that Belarus pretty much has a 
government in exile, what you could call that, led by Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, the wife of one of the main oppositional candidates that like was supposed to become a candidate in the elections, but then he was barred and he's still in jail. The thing is right now what is happening there, so Lukashenko government tries to consolidate the rest of the political space. Usually, authoritarian governments, what is called as there's like this recent term that is called spin dictatorship that is developed by Sergei Guriev, who's a Russian economist based in Paris, and Daniel Traceman. So what they basically argue, which actually has some truth, that modern authoritarian governments tend to mimic democracy. This was the case in Belarus and Russia for a really long time. And we see that there are like a lot of political parties, such as like the agrarian party, or I don't know, like the social sporting party, or like the patriotic party, like etc. But gradually, while the authoritarianism gets even more consolidated, the leaders tend to solidify the political spectrum as well. So especially, there is like an interesting twist here in such a way that autocrats at some point decide to decouple themselves from party politics. Especially this has a huge populist appeal, like in essence. And they are trying to come up with like national front kind of, like the national movement of citizens and the leader. So there's like this typical dichotomy of leader and the people and they're not like intermediaries, such as like the parliament, parties, etc. Which basically what Lukashenko does right now by registering like the movement called Belarus, which is like White Rus, kinda. And like his government forcibly like passed some legislation that uh, tightened the regulations on registering political parties. So a lot of the parties ceased to exist. And Belarus have consolidated all these elites or like the electorate or whatever, so that they can unite as like this national front led by the national leader which most likely is going to be in case in Belarus. So we see a more honest approach in recent years, especially in authoritarianism all over the world. We see like autocrats becoming, quote unquote, more honest by abolishing party politics and by uniting themselves and associating themselves with ordinary people. That's how I view the situation. Thank you. That's super helpful for context. So the elections are happening now at the end of February. I guess it will be interesting to see a, how much attention they get and if they're able to be orchestrated calmly or in the way in which the Belarusian government will want. We remember last time around that there were elections, you know, um, all the massive protests, you know, it was a lot of violence. You know, we were in touch at, at Europolex at the time with people there. I mean, that's when this exile government started taking shape as a response. What do you know about that kind of dynamic this time? Like, does it feel a bit depressing, like Lukashenko has been able to properly control the situation? Or do you think there's a chance that we can see any of that anti-government sentiment that does exist, obviously, across Belarus sort of flare up? Or do you think that they'll mainly want to just breeze through 
this event and focus on opposition by other means. The Belarus government currently can survive due to the external support from Russia. And to say that the Belarus society really likes it or supports it, from what we see, from the evidence that we see, this is not really the case. But at the same time, the society of Belarus wants a peaceful transition. So the overall conclusion and the overall feeling is that there's a need to wait because the evidence shows that in order to have a proper democratic transition, you need to do the transition in a peaceful way. And as of today, this is not really viable. So while the Belarus society has a huge potential for protest, then they most likely, at least like a really sizable portion of the society, does not really feel aligned with the government. There is like still this overall vibe of being more patient and waiting for the right time, like for the so-called wind of change. You mentioned there you can't really analyze Belarus outside of the context of Russia's support of the regime, and they're obviously very closely allied and connected. So should we move into the events in Russia? Obviously, there's a lot of attention on the war in Ukraine and the impact that that is having and European defense policy. But I do think there is scope now, I guess, to look more closely at internal politics in Russia, which is obviously very closely and directly run or dictated by Putin. But as you say, he still feels the need to have this presidential election and then a national election as well. So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts sort of about the timings of this and then anything that you can say about the various candidates and parties that are being allowed to run against Putin. First of all, speaking of the war, today's February 24, and it's the second anniversary of the war right now, and we are marching into the third year of the war. When it comes to what's going on in Russia itself, I mean, again, as a spin dictatorship, or like what used to be a spin dictatorship, like most of the authoritarian regimes nowadays, they feel the need to reform themselves. This is why like these elections are happening. And, you know, like within the Russian opposition, like the Russian liberal community, it's not even called like elections. They usually use the term called quote unquote electoral procedure, because this is like in essence an electoral procedure with no like real politics going on. Again, what we see with Putin, he he's running as an independent mimicking like this new relatively new trend of the authoritarian autocrats decoupling themselves from political parties because just like in belarus you have this movement the newly emerged party called belarus in russia also there's this organization like a political coalition called all russia people's front and putin over the last 10 years he does not associate himself with united russia that much or anymore. He more associates himself with People's Front, Narodna Front. Again, we see like this similar line of an autocrat aligning himself with the general population by eliminating all intermediaries as like 
parties, parliament, judiciary, whatever, any other government institution, right? In these elections in Russia, we currently have four candidates. The rest of the candidates, apart from Putin, is the candidate from the Communist Party of Russian Federation, Haritonov. Then there is the candidate Leonid Slutsky from the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia and Vladislav Davanko from a party of new people. What you need to know that usually in Russian presidential elections, there is a candidate that is like the communist kind of guy, like the wannabe communist, who is driving his campaign around the Soviet nostalgia that I don't know, like things used to be better, etc., etc., etc. Then there's another candidate. In our case, it's Vladislav Davanko from the Party of New People, who is like this wannabe liberal, whose goal is to attract the liberal electorate. And like this liberal candidate usually talks about like the rule of law, human rights, that like they, we need like to achieve like a separation of powers, etc. And then there is Liberal Democratic Party of Russia that used to be led by Vladimir Zhirinovsky. He passed away like last year, two years ago, I think. While it's called the Liberal Democratic Party, in essence, that's not really a Liberal Democratic Party. It is a pretty far-right, nationalist, reactionary political party that usually supports like really like imperialist policies, like hawkish foreign policy kind of platform. And the point of having a candidate from LDPR is to get the electorate within the far-right community of Russia. Apart from that, the essential point is to show Vladimir Putin, the autocrat, as the most viable and like the most sensible candidate among all others. And that's why, like, when you look at the paper, you see, like, there's, like, Vladimir Putin, then there's this wannabe communist nostalgia guy, whoever he is, then there's, like, this far-right imperialist radical guy, and then there's a liberal wannabe. That is, like, the essence of Russian elections. When you look at this list, and you need to make a choice, the point is to have a candidate list in which Putin will look as the most viable option, relatively speaking. But this year was really different because we see, based on the opinion polls and based on the societal trends, we see that there's a huge dissatisfaction within the Russian society over the war. The biggest concern that Russian society has is that the government, the state, needs to focus on domestic politics more. And there's this emerging isolationist feeling within Russians. And it has to channel itself somehow. And we've seen like these two instances. First of all, there was a potential candidate, Yekaterina Duntsova, who decided to run for the elections. She had like a clear anti-war campaign and she was campaigning around stopping like what's going on right now, like to go to negotiations with Ukraine, etc. But then the Central Electoral Commission did not let her to become a candidate at all. They did not even let her to start the procedure of collecting signatures. On the other hand, there was another potential candidate, Boris Nadzerzin. He was let by the Central Electoral Committee to start the procedure of uh, collecting signatures. And it was a huge deal in Russia because we've seen like the footage of 
in various cities all over Russia, not only like in Moscow or St. Petersburg, but like really like small towns like all over Siberia, Ural, etc. People standing in lines for hours so that they can put a signature for his candidacy. Eventually, he collected the required amount, but still he was barred to run and to become a candidate because... Well, that's the usual thing. Even if you collect all the signatures, like the process designed in such a complicated way, which is on purpose, obviously, so that the Central Electoral Committee looks at your signatures, finds like some irregularities, and based on these quote-unquote irregularities, they tell you that the signatures that you've collected are invalid. The same fate happened to Boris Nazarzin as well, and he was barred to become a candidate after all. But anyway... What we see, there's this huge request from the society for a change. And as soon as there is like some like window of hope or whatever you call it, we see like this pretty big communities all over the country to mobilize, to show some support, to channel it or to transform it into some sort of a political action. We've seen it first with Yekaterina Dunsova, second with Boris Nadzersin, and right now, in the aftermath of Alexei Navalny's death, we also see that people like started to awaken politically. It's still a long way to go, and the problem is because the state is too violent and authoritarian in nature, and that's why like people do not also want to resort into some like violent means. So just like in Belarus, the Russian society is also currently waits for the so-called wind of change. There will be like an emerging situation or like a possibility or like an opportunity where you could act peacefully to achieve political transformation. So this is what's happening in the authoritarian part of Europe. While the society is peaceful, the society really needs political change and also from what we see like on the analysis such as like the world value survey these societies pretty much have like a somewhat liberal views towards life but because the state is captured by extremely violent groups so they have nothing else to do rather than waiting for the right moment to act thank you Javid. i did want to touch obviously on the death of Navalny because obviously that's what's dominated the coverage across the world in terms of internal politics in Russia. I know that Putin and the government, they've been doing their best to minimize the news around it inside Russia, but it would interest to hear a few about A, the timings of it, you know, could it be linked? And also, do you think they are being successful in minimizing the impact of the death sort of in light of this presidential campaign that they're about to launch and they'll obviously want to control as much as possible. There is one thing that is happening right now. Navalny's parents want to get his body so that they bury him the way they wish, but the government officials refuse giving his body to his family and they're blackmailing their parents are like pressuring so that they bury him like within the premises of the prison facility the problem is the russian government knows that if there's going to be like a proper burial ceremony most likely a lot of people will show up 
and the government wants to avoid this like uh, massive burial ceremony at any cost because i mean imagine navalny is getting buried in a conventional way most likely what's going to happen ambassadors of a lot of especially western countries will attend the ceremony apart from that we'll see that most likely a lot of his like supporters or like any other people who were sympathetic to him they would try or like consider to show up to the ceremony the government is really afraid to allow that to happen and they're trying to bury him themselves by pressuring the parents. So this is like the main news in Russia right now, like as of today. On the other hand, on the election day, which is like March 17, the Navalny's team like a month ago, they have declared this protest action in a way where they said whoever is against Putin and whoever is against like the war and what's happening right now, they need to show up at the polling stations, wherever they live, at noon. So it's also like an interesting development to observe. On March 17, most likely, a lot of Navalny supporters, or in general, not only Navalny supporters, but like people who are against the ongoing developments in Russia, may gather up at polling stations. It is totally legal. I mean, you cannot really bar electorate coming to polling stations. So we don't really know how government can react to this. That's a very brave thing to do in Russia. And I guess, yeah, as you say, it'll be uh, something to watch to see the dynamics there because we know the tactics that the Russian government does always use to calm protests. I think that's where we wrap up, Javid. It's been really interesting to hear all of your knowledge and thoughts on important events in European politics, even if the final results of them cannot be seen as legitimate. They are orchestrated events that are used to influence national and international politics and obviously the way in which these leaders manage to control or not control their societies has a much broader impact on all of us Europeans. So I think it's important work that everyone at Europe elects the focuses on this does and will continue to report on it. So yeah, thank you for that, Shavid. And we'll be back soon with the Another podcast focusing on other events coming up. There are obviously some that I've mentioned. There are elections in Portugal in March. There's a chaotic UK election coming up in a few days. Uh, Lots of regional elections as always. So do stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast, which is hosted by me, Gabriel Hedengren, and Javid Ibad. Our producer and audio engineers were Leonardo Basso and Joao Reis. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Eric Balonwu and Thomas Stokes. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do would be impossible without our patrons on Patreon, so thank you very much. Please do follow us to stay up to date with European politics. you find us across every social media platform you can imagine, but mainly Twitter slash X, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also find us online at europelex.eu and at europelex is the way to find us on all those social media accounts, except for Instagram, at which we are at europe underscore elect. 
Also, if you have any ideas for segments, any thoughts on topics we should be covering, or if you just want to say hi, shoot us an email at podcast at europolix.eu. Thank you all so much again and see you next time.